When he was just a child, an astrologer predicted that Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh might not make it past the age of 21, but Rajneesh did live past that age and went on to become a powerful spiritual leader and a so-called sex guru. To his disciples, he preached a mix of Eastern mysticism, Western philosophy, and free love with a promise of utopia. Today, we're going to tell you about the Rajneeshi movement and its founder, Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh. We'll get into how this group, one that embraced peaceful living, got caught up in an attempted murder plot, voter fraud, and also committed one of the largest acts of bioterrorism on US soil. Hi everyone and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week we're going to cover your favourite cults, faith followers and secret societies. And we'll look into how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. Today we're going to tell you all about Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh and the Rajneeshi movement. We'll get into how Rajneesh went from small-time university professor to big-time spiritual leader. And we'll discuss how his meditation retreats brought in millions of dollars and how he got caught up in voter fraud and attempted murder. And just a heads up, as we said earlier, he does go on to become a giant sex guru. So the content in this episode is probably not suitable for children. Right, let's get into Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's early life. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was born Chandra Mohan Jain in Kuchwara, India in 1931. His parents were followers of the ancient Indian religion, Jain Dharma, which is also commonly known as Jainism. Jainism is known as one of the world's most peace-loving religions because of its strict doctrine of non-violence. They believe that the body and soul are completely separate, and they don't believe in a single creator or ruler of the universe. Rajneesh was raised by his grandparents until the age of seven. His granddad asked one of the top astrologers at the time to make a birth chart for his grandson. The astrologer said that it was almost certain that Rajneesh wouldn't make it past the age of 21 years old. Rajneesh did have a near-death experience long before that. When he was just a toddler, he actually got smallpox, which nearly killed him. But, as we said, he of course lived past the age of 21 and became quite a sex guru, which you would think, as an astrologer laying out his future plan, how'd he miss that one? I don't know, but I imagine if you are gurily inclined (laughs) that... You're going to write some animal magnetism into your own stars, I think. So, aside from astrology and, as we'll go on to see, sex guruing, meditation was an obsession for young Rajneesh. He explored various techniques in search of what his uncle described as, quote, the supreme power. Uh Uh-oh. Feeling, like, obsessed about meditation feels like a bit of an oxymoron. (laughs) Like, surely the whole point. I'm so intense about my meditation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's the most intense part of my day. But interestingly, a lot of people who are into meditation 
constantly keep telling me about it. And I'm like, mm, I probably should. It seems like it's been around for a long time. And it seems like it's really <laughs> helped some people. Studies show that it has been around for quite some time. And I'm like, but my problem is I can't sit still and my mind won't stop racing, which I know are also the things that meditation cures. No, you're not very good at sitting still, actually. <laughs> so pr- problems abound. After graduating from high school in 1951, Rajneesh attended college. But after an altercation with a professor, he was asked to leave. Why does that not surprise me? Because uh, there's a cult wind chime playing in the be- background. Yes, because they're. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you know they just cut that out. I don't know why you keep bothering. Um, it's just a marker. It's a marker, so they know where to put it. Yeah, people who go on to lead cults generally don't like being told what to do. No. Nope. Same for psychopaths. Same for serial killers. Which is why Hannibal Lecter is not a very believable character, according to killer profilers. You can take it away from there, Saru. No, you're right. It is. I can't remember where I read that or where I saw that. But yeah, the whole idea of Hannibal Lecter being, you know, this high flying psychiatrist doctor is 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 quite unbelievable, is what this person was saying. Although I do know that there is a higher percentage of psychopaths presented in successful jobs like politicians, surgeons, lawyers, etc. But someone who is that much of a psychopath that they are also a serial killer saying he would have been too bored he never would have sat through all those exams he never would have mm. taken instruction like that he never would have become as qualified to become a psychiatrist and also been a serial killer at the same time yeah interesting so take that hollywood so after he gets told off and kicked out of school for beating up a teacher he transferred to a different school but then decided he needed a gap year and an american translation a gap year <laughs> Gap Yard is a YouTube video sensation. Mm-hmm. Oh my Gap Yard and Tanzana. Iconic. Yeah. I ran out of gas, so I had to go to the gas machine oh, to get the gas girl the lash. Was written by someone who I went to university oh, with. Oh, really? About my university, yeah. That is so funny. So the trope is that everyone, not everyone, but it's very common in the UK to take a gap year in between finishing high school and then going to university. And in that year you go and build a wall in Nicaragua or something and then talk about how great you are for the rest of your life. So for his gap year, he didn't join a training theatre company. He didn't build a wall in Nicaragua. He didn't even build a well in Gambia. It was on this break that he claimed to reach enlightenment. In just one year. Mm. It's a pretty impressive gap year. Yeah. If in one year... You can do that. Oh, yeah. Well done. Well done, you. And he described his very fast track path to enlightenment as an explosion. All I managed to do on my gap year, apart from have an excellent time, was uh, pick up some sort of violently aggressive parasite, which I still to this day don't know what it was. (laughs) Because it still lives inside you. It probably does. I think it's gone now because one of the key and most troubling symptoms of it was if alcohol even touched my lips... I would just start violently throwing up. And I looked it up and there are quite a few parasites that alcohol is toxic to them. So they release a bunch of toxins uh, into you to make you throw up, to make you stop drinking it. Bummer. I know. What a little bitch. <laughs> and then in 1953, the very same year of his explosion, he found the time to go back to school and got a bachelor's and a master's degree in philosophy. And then in 1957, just four years post-explosion, he became a professor of philosophy. Rajneesh traveled around India, spreading his unconventional and controversial ideas about spirituality. Rajneesh's teachings have been described as, quote, a blend of Eastern religion, pop psychology, and free love. 
which easy peasy sounds fun how you get them yeah it really is i mean it also could be the fucking brand ethos for like yoga pants (laughs) like a brand of yoga pants. crotchless yoga pants yeah obvious obviously free (laughs) love Uh, that's the free love part So Rajneesh, unsurprisingly, like many, many a cult leader before him, drew from many influences, from Christianity, Hasidism, yoga, and Zen, and even from our old friend Sigmund Freud and Henry Ford. I'm less perturbed by Sigmund Freud. Henry Ford? I think he had some good quotes. Yeah, history is bunk. That's Henry Ford. Yeah, there's another one. I've forgotten what it is. I'll Google it. There's some good Henry Ford quotes You've out there. You've got your phone, mine's over there. I haven't, but let me Google it. Henry Ford quotes. <laughs> There's another one that he had that was actually a really good one. Oh, this one. This one is probably what it is. Oh. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. So maybe that's all you need is a sprinkling of Henry Ford. You know what? Compared to some of the shit that people have said, that is a very insightful little line. And to be honest, out of all of the people... I'm going to listen to extremely successful Henry Ford. Precisely. Mm-hmm. So I take back my scoff. Mm-hmm. I unscoff. I rescind my scoff. I also like his next one. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20 or 80. Henry. All right. So yes, he's borrowing from all of these men and all of these groups of people to create his own belief system. Rajneesh was also a vocal critic of Mahatma Gandhi as well as of mainstream religions and socialism. He championed capitalism, science, technology, and birth control. He also warned against overpopulation. He discouraged reproduction and encouraged abortion. So he's like, all the sex, none of the rest. (laughs) I wish that rhymed. Rajneesh also believed that both Western psychology and Eastern spirituality were good, but not by themselves. He said that a blend of both was needed to help someone reach enlightenment. He told people that sex was the first step towards achieving, quote, super consciousness. And he gave himself the title of sex guru, which we have discussed on Red Handed many times. If you give yourself a nickname, Mm -hmm. it's not a nickname. You're just a dickhead. Rajneesh said this of sex. He said, quote, the primal energy of sex has the reflection of God in it. It is obvious It is the energy that creates new life, and that is the greatest, most mysterious force of all. On his speaking tours, Rajneesh, the sex guru, the self-titled, self-styled sex guru, would speak out against local religions, but would not go so far as to offend his audience. Hedging his bets. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to piss everyone off who could be in your potential victim pool. (laughs) Yeah, or your voter pool mm-hmm. your constituents every day's a maybe every day's a maybe every face is a maybe so Rajneesh developed an idea that he called the new man idea he wanted to create a world where the new man's ideals would go beyond good and evil and be free from the restrictions and obligations of society with the hope that it would lead a person to enlightenment it's been widely documented that Rajneesh had an eye for the ladies I mean with all of his uh, sex chat. He's got an eye for something. Uh, yeah, he's got an eye for something. And I would say him being like, as a religion, I'm definitely pro, definitely, definitely like super A-OK with the abortions. I would have guessed it was the ladies. Yes, I would too. Mm-hmm. Detectives. So some of the female followers that Rajneesh had believed that sex with Rajneesh was, quote, the ultimate darshan. 
Darshan, just in case you don't know, is the site of a holy one or deity. So would you like me to ask you a question? Sure. Why not? Imagine if you just said no. <laughs> then we'd just leave. <laughs> Throw the Thank you for over. listening to this week's episode. <laughs> we'll see you. Okay. Would you like to hear one of Rajneesh's viewpoints on women? Absolutely. Would you like to hazard a guess at the theme of this quote? Uh, is it about her not shagging and bragging? Uh, so here's the direct quote that I've got for you. He said, because of the womb being a central phenomenon in the feminine body, the whole psychology of woman differs. She is non-aggressive, non-inquiring, non-questioning, non-doubting, because all of those things are part of aggression. She will not take the initiative. She simply waits. And she can wait infinitely. I, speaking as a woman with at least one womb, <laughs> I've had a smear test. I know it's there. I can't wait for anything. No. I need it right now. I'm Veruca Salt up in this bitch. I don't care how. I want no, it now. No, I think this is what he wants women to be. I don't think this is what women... Well, some women are, but some men are. I don't know. Whatever. Sure. Generalization into his dream woman. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm, what Raj, mm-hmm. he's projecting. He's like, I hope by me telling you this, will you be it? That's what I'd like. And then be really quiet about what I do to you sexually. By 1964, Rajneesh was holding meditation camps and recruiting followers. By 1966, he'd quit his teaching job to focus on sharing his spiritual teachings. He also managed to gather some wealthy backers who started an educational trust to support his meditation retreats which would later become known as the Rajneesh Foundation. And by 1969, Rajneesh had established a headquarters in Mumbai where he surrounded himself with adoring followers who believed that his philosophy could save humankind. Why can't it just be his philosophy helps me get my shopping list done in one go? Why does it every single time have to be the whole world and everything in it? (sighs) His philosophy makes me feel a little bit less anxious about my nails. Because you got to go whole hog. you got to go Do big you? or go home. Yeah. Well, I think so, because that's what they all seem to do. And it works every time. Coming up, thousands flock to Rajneesh's ashram in India, searching for their own explosion of enlightenment. But searching for that enlightenment involve violent therapy sessions. So let's get into how Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh attracted thousands of followers to his ashram in India. In 1971, Rajneesh adopted the name Bhagwan, which translates to Blessed One. He now had around 4,000 followers who believed that he was capable of delivering on his promise of salvation for all of humankind. Really, really going, going all the way to the top of the top of the list of claims. Yes, and also employing all of the same tactics as teacher training yoga studios. It's ground well trodden. It works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Who said that? Was it Henry Ford? I don't know. <laughs> and. These 4,000 followers actually compared Rajneesh to Buddha, Jesus, and Hindu superstar Krishna. Rajneesh's followers were known as neo-sannyasins, the term appropriated the Hindu philosophy 
of asceticism, in which followers renounce their worldly goods and possessions in order to ascend to the next ashrama, or spiritual life stage. However, neo-sannyasins embraced worldly things and only denounced the ego. Rajneesh created dynamic meditation. He claimed it could enable people to experience divinity. And when young, stupid Westerners heard about this practice, they visited his ashram in India and they all became devout followers. It's prime time, 70s. People are like, they're hungry for it. They're hungry for a bit of Eastern mysticism. Yeah, they read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, didn't do it for them. They bought a tie-dye bandana, still looking for what they couldn't find. They even tried wearing a bindi for a while. They got to fight the system. They got to fight their square parents. So they're off to India to join an ashram. Why not? You will also definitely get a parasite. And in true terrorist incel style, Rajneesh also wrote a manifesto that outlined basic principles for his followers. And I'm going to give it to you in layman's terms. He believed that everyone could find their way to enlightenment. He also wanted to build intentional communities around the world where people could practice meditation and achieve spiritual growth. So far, okay. Mm -hmm. That's fine. If you want to sit cross-legged on a farm, be my guest. Go nuts. So in 1972, Rajneesh was introduced to a woman named Sheila Patel, who would go on to become one of the most important players in Rajneesh's inner circle. And Rajneesh helped the then 20-year-old Sheila with the impending death of her sickly husband. That kind of sounds like he murdered him. <laughs> I don't think that's what we're saying, but he pinpoints a vulnerable woman. Yeah. I call Sheila Patel at this point vulnerable. She goes on to be very not vulnerable in the rest of this story. And there's that Netflix documentary, is it like Wild Wild Country? In that, she doesn't come across great. No, she does not. She's not the best. She's not the most likable protagonist. So not long after their meeting, Sheila joined the Rajneeshi movement and was given the name Ma Anand Sheila. And we'll come back to Sheila in a bit, because don't worry, she's a, a big part of this case. Yeah, and Saru's going to come back to Sheila because there is no way I'm going to be able to pronounce that. I always think whenever we do Indian cases, like obviously I'm listening to the way you're pronouncing it because you know how to do it. But then if I try and do it right, I just sound like I'm making fun of you. It's hard, man. It's really hard. In 1974, Rajneesh and his followers moved from Mumbai to a four-acre property in Pune, India. I used to live in Pune. Did well, you really? I say I say Pune. Some people say Pune. Um, but yeah, I lived there when I was a little kid. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. So in fine old Pune or Pune, whichever way you want to pronounce it, he went there because it's only about two hours east of Mumbai. So far enough away, but close enough to an airport to keep those Westerners coming in. Uh, yes. And very much like America or very much like the United States, I should say, two hours in India is like, that's fucking next door. Yeah, okay. And there he opened an ashram on the property that attracted thousands of devotees. Westerners were particularly drawn to this place, and eventually they outnumbered the Indians on the property. It's part of that, like, spiritual grand tour, isn't it? Which, you know, I'm here for. Like, at least they weren't, like, fucking sticking the muds, like, hanging out in the West, being like, no, 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 I'm not interested in anything. They were like, I'm going to go find out. I'll have a little look. Oh, shit, I'm in a cult. That is how it always happens. That is the tendency. <laughs> they gave it a go. But this is very interesting. Usually, Asian people give themselves English names, but this is the other way around. Rajneesh's Western followers were given Indian names, and they all dressed in orange and red robes. Hashtag assimilation. <laughs> 
when white people do it, it's fine. It's all fine. Like, if you're going to go hang out in a majority Indian country, then maybe you want to take up an Indian name. Can you give me an Indian name? Let me think about what would... Not whether we can. We absolutely can. Okay. Let me think about a good one. Okay. I'll come back to you. Okay. Rajneesh's followers came from all walks of life. They were doctors, lawyers, professors. The one thing they had in common was they were all looking for spiritual enlightenment, which aren't we all? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, find it where you can get it. And once again, we see in this group, like we've seen with so many other cults, it's not like people who are on the fringes of society. These are successful people who are drawn to this. So I know it's easy to look back at these cults and to scoff at them and be like, it's so stupid, but there's something there with these leaders that they are able to attract this kind of person. And that's what makes cults endlessly fascinating. And that's why I guess you're listening to this podcast. So between the years of 1974 and 1980, the ashram grew rapidly with about 6,000 followers living on and around the commune where they attended meditations, therapy sessions, and lectures. By 1977, there were about 25,000 Rajneeshis worldwide. And to appeal to Westerners, the ashram added therapy sessions to the retreats. Some sessions involved followers hitting each other to release aggression. And, just in case you're wondering, yes, they were often naked during these sessions. Oh, good. I mean, it's the only way to enlighten <laughs> And again, it's very interesting because, like, you have to think of these cults like we do often on sinister societies as a business. And he knows where his bread is buttered. I'm not going to go after Indians. I'm going to go after Westerners. That's where the money is. So what do they want to hear? So a former member said that this therapy session when they're beating each other up while they're naked was to, quote, break you down completely to destroy any remnant of self-confidence or self-trust that you had left. Sounds about right. Mm Mm-hmm. Another therapy session involved spending 17 hours a day in five-minute intervals, alternately answering and listening to a partner answer the question, who am I? Who are you? I mean, (laughs) ah, (laughs) I don't know. I feel so exposed. (laughs) And then someone just comes, takes my clothes off and beats me up. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, I don't like it. It's quite a tough question. Maybe the next time we do some recruitment, first question we ask, who are you? Uh, How did you get here? How did you get past security? (laughs) Oh, God. And so with their very clear plan of going after Westerners, the ashram, you'll be unsurprised to know, was absolutely raking in the money. Rajneesh was making a lot of money from his canteen as well. And he'd also established a book publishing business, and was selling jewellery, pottery, and clothes. I bet his book publishing company was called Indian Indian Mumbai. Mumbai. (laughs) (laughs) He knows. Got to get those fingers in those pies, get those holding companies, get those tax-evading accounts, and you do it with a web of businesses. 100%. I actually went to a vegetarian Indian restaurant a few weeks ago, and I'm 100% sure that it was funding a cult. Interesting. By the late 70s, the ashram was getting so overcrowded that Rajneesh was looking for a new property. But his movement was now getting a bit of a controversial reputation. The local government made finding a new property pretty difficult for him. There were reports from the Indian government and former disciples that the Rajneeshi movement was involved in the smuggling of drugs, gold, and money. In 1981, Rajneesh was eager to leave India because his businesses were embroiled in disputes over millions of dollars in unpaid taxes. And he's like, I've already got all of these stupid Westerners following me here. Why don't I go to the West where they come from? There's loads of them there. And my tax bill won't follow me. (laughs) 
So he turned his attention to the United States, and this is when Ma Anand Sheila returns to the story. She was now running the Rajneesh Foundation International, the business arm of the organization. Sheila, who was familiar with the United States, managed to find a property in north-central Oregon, for which they paid nearly $6 million in 1981. But in Oregon, no tax. What? So you don't pay taxes on items in There's the no state. sales tax. No sales tax. Interesting. So it's cheaper to live there, so property prices are higher. I mean, it bloody better be. $6 million <laughs> in 1981. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. That's outrageous. But that's what they did. This property would become the center of the movement and its business operations. It'd have to be all those things and a bit more for me, for that <laughs> money. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's businesses at the time included the Rajneesh Foundation International, the Rajneesh Investment Corporation, and the Rajneesh Neosanyas International Commune. All of these were managed under an umbrella organization called Rajneesh Services International Limited. He's like, what's the most business name I can think of? Oh, it's businessy. Rajneesh Services International Limited. We've learned this quite early on on an episode we did. Don't put your own name in it. Oh, never. If you're a cult doing some underground smuggling. I mean, never put your own name in it anyway, unless it's just your surname. And even then... Well, we've made big mistakes. I know we have. Um, but I'm going to stay clear of all of the organized crime for now. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I said I. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly what I would say. How do you think I know so much about the triad? <laughs> Up next, the Rajneeshi's new home comes into conflict with local Oregonians. And that results in a tiny little bit of bioterrorism and voter fraud. So let's get into Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh's move to America and how his movement got caught up in yet more controversy. As we mentioned before the break, Rajneesh moved to the US and bought property in the Oregon desert. It was in the desert. Six million. Maybe it's got a spring. Infinity pool. Yeah, maybe it's got a podcast studio. Maybe it's got a torture wheel. <laughs> Everything a sex every dungeon needs. Exactly. The property was in a very small town called Antelope, which is about two hours east of Portland in Wasco County. And when we say that they bought the property, that makes it sound like they just got a building or they just got a house. No, no, no. They bought 64,000 acres. And they named it Rajneesh Puram, which if you go to India, a lot of like um, towns will have the ending Puram. It's like Shire. Ah, okay. That makes sense. So he's like Rajneeshville. Basically. Interesting. From my understanding of naming things. The group hoped to create a utopian space for its followers, one that involved infrastructure and services that are usually associated with a town. However, the property was legally only allowed to be used for agricultural purposes. So, like, you can have 64,000 acres of land, but do not start a town. No, you can't do shit with You're it. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you can only farm it. Yeah. And it's in the desert. Mm, yeah. Good luck. 
1982, however, the Rajneeshis got to vote in nearby local elections, and they ended up winning a majority of its city council seats. Smart. They're like, we've got to branch out. We've got to get into local government. That's how the Lib Dems are doing it. We've got to get into local government. That's the only way. So soon after this win, the new Rajneeshi council members raised property taxes to extract money from the few remaining local residents and passed other bizarre initiatives, including renaming the local recycling centre the Adolf Hitler Recycling Centre. So, like, how can we get rid of all these people? I was just going to ask what possible motive could they have had. Yeah. But you're right. That's exactly what it is. They're just like, let's... Raise your taxes. We'll name this yeah. thing the Adolf Hitler Recycling Center. And then we'll make you leave so that we can take up all the space and grow our town. That's not a town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. According to Oregon Live, by the end of 1982, two dozen business licenses had been issued to the Rajneesh Neosanya's international commune. The commune's enterprises included several restaurants, a tour and information service, a jewellery shop, a service station, a plant nursery, a design studio, and a sewage disposal service. Sounds like a town to me. Sounds like a town. What else could you possibly need? Well, I'll tell you what else they need. (laughs) They've got all the services, but they've got nowhere to lay their head until now because they also built hundreds of small houses and created an ambitious farm system on the property too. And they had their own airport. I wonder how many licenses you need to get to build an airport, but maybe in the middle of the desert, none. I think so. Mm. And on top of all of that, they had some pretty heavy armory. They had a security force that was armed with revolvers, semi-automatics and assault rifles. And they also had tear gas grenades and barricade penetrating shells for police riot guns. According to Oregon Live, in 1983, after seeing a film about Nostradamus, Rajneesh began to make apocalyptic predictions. Uh-oh. He said that the year 1984 would herald 15 years of catastrophes, including floods, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, nuclear explosions, all leading to a global holocaust. Don't give yourself a sell-by date, mate. You're onto a good thing. They just can't help it. They cannot help it. And despite the doomsday predictions, the Rajneeshis wanted to keep building, which is also very interesting. Like, would you not question that as like, I mean, probably not if you're in this fucking cult, but, you know, why are we continually having to do this and build if it's all going to end in, you know, Mm. like 2000 after 15 years of everything being shit? But that's what they did. However, the Rajneeshis did find that they were struggling to get building permits for certain things. So, All those earthquakes. Again, their doomsday cult just uh, hampered by bureaucratic red tape. So in 1984, they decided to take over the Wasco County elections. They hatched a plan, spearheaded by Ma, Ann and Sheila, in which they would poison the locals so that they couldn't get out to vote. I mean, it is a plan. That will do it. Some of the Rajneeshis did a practice poison run in which they went to 10 restaurants in the area and poured salmonella-tainted liquid onto items in salad bars. Oh, God. I know. That makes me feel so sick. That makes me want to go never, ever near a salad bar ever again in my life. Yeah. Which is already a problem for me. I mean, I do not think they are a good place, even if somebody isn't pouring salmonella purposefully onto them. So a total of 751 people came down with salmonella poisoning. It was one of the largest bioterrorism attacks in modern American history. But no one died. The Rajneeshis also bust in around 2,000 homeless people promising them food and shelter at Rajneeshpuram if in return they would vote in the local elections. They didn't need any ID to vote back then, I suppose. I mean, as somebody who is fervently against voter ID, 
I understand this is a problem with it, but... Oh, I'm against voter ID too. But uh, they're like, uh, everybody shush about this, this massive <laughs> voter fraud that happened. <laughs> oh man, according to the Atlantic magazine, the people that they brought in were woken up at 5.30 a.m., sometimes blindfolded and forced to listen to hours of religious chanting. Why just take them to the fucking poll? Yeah, they've booth. already said they'll do it. They've already got on a bloody bus and came out to the middle of antelope. Mm-hmm. And the Rajneeshis also spiked beer cakes with tranquilizers in order to subdue their guests. Why? I don't know. Just don't give them beer. They'll be so bored. Like, you don't need to get people drunk and then subdue them. Oh, man. Local officials caught wind of the group's voter fraud scheme, probably because they were making very little effort to hide it. And so the Rajneeshis ended up pulling out of the elections two days before the vote. One of the Rajneeshi deputies said that the whole thing had been an elaborate ruse and the county didn't understand their sense of humour. Nothing <laughs> makes me laugh harder mm-hmm. than salmonella mm-hmm. and the abuse of homeless people. Mm-hmm. For voter fraud in local yeah. elections. Oh my God. <laughs> so if all this wasn't bad enough, in May 1985, Ma Arnon Sheila decided that they needed to assassinate the US attorney for Oregon because his prosecutors were investigating immigration fraud at the commune. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. They definitely won't immediately look at you and definitely won't replace that US attorney with somebody else who's going to continue to do the same thing. A federal mediator disclosed to the Rajneeshis that criminal charges were likely and might include the guru himself. He also disclosed that Sheila probably would also be charged. Sheila thought that killing the attorney would somehow derail the entire investigation. They also targeted the state attorney general. So, you know, just keeping it low profile, just keeping it cash. Who do they think they are? I mean, he thinks... Sex guru. Sorry, stupid question. The enlightened ones. Mm -hmm. So while all this was going on, Sheila reported that Rajneesh had started taking drugs. His personal doctor was allegedly one of his suppliers. Sheila asked Rajneesh to stop using substances because of his reputation, but he told her to stay out of it. Little woman... Go be quiet. terrifying woman. Yeah, go be quiet and all of the things I listed earlier in this episode. Go and think about how central your womb is. (laughs) In September 1985, Sheila and 15 to 20 other top officials left the commune. They were immediately, of course, denounced by Rajneesh. He accused Sheila and her, quote, fascist gang of embezzling $55 million and plotting to eavesdrop on potential rivals, kill public officials and contaminate a town's water supply. In 1985, the Chicago Tribune described Sheila as, quote, the pistol-toting former personal secretary to Rajneesh, who once ran the commune as a virtual despot. Still, in 1985, Sheila and two other leaders were extradited from Germany. They entered a plea bargain on a range of charges, the most serious being the conspiracy to kill the US attorney, as well as the attempted murder of Rajneesh's physician, who had been supplying the drugs. A month after Sheila's departure, Rajneesh was arrested in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was thought that he was trying to flee the country. And on November 14th, 1985, Rajneesh left the United States in accordance with a plea bargain on charges of arranging fraudulent marriages. What's a fraudulent marriage when it's at home? Maybe like we saw with the fishing boat one, where it's like marriages to get people over like immigration. Oh, I see. Duh, that does make sense. And I'm about to tell you the same thing. 
These marriages were arranged so that foreign disciples could circumvent visa restrictions and remain in the United States. And famously, the United States don't like that very much. No, they do not at all like that. So two weeks after Rajneesh left, commune officials decided that Rajneeshpuram was no longer economically viable and members were asked to leave as soon as possible. The commune was then sold in December 1988 for a loss because it went for just $4.3 million. After all the work you've put in building all of those recycling centres. Or think of being on the other foot, the bargain. You're right. Only a sprinkling of the salmonella, which (laughs) you can easily get rid of with some sort of blue light, I'm sure. (laughs) And then you are good to go. Bargain. Someone cleaned up. So after pleading guilty, Rajneesh returned to India, where he found the number of his followers had significantly decreased. That will happen. It will. If you abandon them for the worst. Uh Uh-huh. He searched unsuccessfully for a new country in which to re-establish an ashram, but was denied entry into numerous places. So he ended up returning again to India in 1986. I'm guessing once word got out about all the bioterrorism. Yes. No, no, no. It's not very ashram, is it? Not in our salad bars. Get out. So when he returned to India, he renamed himself Osho and continued to teach. But in 1990, he died of heart failure at his commune in present-day Pune, India. Ma Anand Sheila served 39 months in prison for attempted murder and assault. Since the late 80s, she's been living in Switzerland. Why not? That's quite the story, isn't it? It's quite the tale. It's kind of the perfect story. It's got all the mix of the usual stuff we see in occult, mm-hmm. Eastern mysticism, the Western psychology, smashing it all together, going after the Westerners. Yes, please, I'll take that money. The bioterrorism, new angle. New angle, indeed. And there is one extremely important question. What is my Indian name? Who am I, India? Oh, I forgot to continue I knew thinking you of names. I started and then I was like, oh, we just pay attention. <laughs> I need to do reading. I need to do reading. <laughs> if you say Lakshmi, I'm leaving. I was trying to think one start with a H, but I can't. There's not many. I, I can only think of boys' names that start with H. I'll be a boy. There is a name that I really, it doesn't start with H actually. It starts with B. I don't know why this came to me. But when I used to live in Pune, it used to be my best friend who lived next door. And his name was Ahirath. Fine, I'll be him. There you go. Done. Tick. <laughs> Moving on. So yeah, that is the wild and wonderful case of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. He's very ambitious. Very ambitious, very sex motivated and loves a little bacteria. Absolutely. So hopefully you learn a lot, especially some Henry Ford quotes that you can embroider onto a pillow or something. I don't know. But yeah, that's that. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And we just want to give a quick shout out to the sources that we use for this episode. We reference the reporting of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the Associated Press, the Atlantic Magazine, Oregon Live, The Verge and The New Republic. And if you like the show, make sure you follow at Parcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us and want to hear us talk about some other crazy true crime cases from all over the world, then come on over and check out Red Handed, which is our weekly true crime podcast that Hannah and I have been running together for 
four and a half years now, there is a fascinating episode that I think you'll really enjoy, a two-parter actually, on a man named Adrian Lim, who committed some pretty horrific child ritual murders in Singapore. If you're into kind of new age religion smashed together with things like Buddhism that ends in murder, yeah. then that's the case for you. And so you can also learn how to hide a needle inside an egg. Precisely. Only in that episode over on Red Handed, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo and Gemma Waters. Sound designed by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. And fact-checking by Cara McAleen. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>